All right. Well, come on back. Hey, in the back aisle by Bill Bartram is a pass a handout here where you can distinguish. I'm trying to help you distinguish the Old Testament prophets. Right. That's good. I agree. And you're going to get two tonight that are very distinguishable or can be distinguished. And we're going to try and get through Obadiah and Jonah, or at least one chapter. Hey, here's a couple other things. We're going to Hungary in June. I've been in contact today, praise the Lord, with the pastors at Calvary Chapel in Budapest. And uh, so we're going there. And if you want to donate, uh, you can put it uh, some money in the box back there. That'd be a blessing. Uh, giving is a gift. And uh, help our people, 11 people from here. And, well associated with our church and then two people that are our translators and the people we support Chaba and Agnes Fair and they're down on the wall down there a picture and you can look at who they are their handout is right up here in the front pew I guess we don't have pews but on the front chair (laughs) Um, another thing is I can't believe this is true because somebody just texted me next week is next Wednesday is community dinner so don't eat at home Come here and eat healthy, like we always do. Eat healthy here, 6 o'clock, and then 7 o'clock service here. Uh, You can do that. um, And we probably have more announcements, and just like every time, they'll come back to me. But uh, let's do this. Here's the first uh, uh, prophet that we're going to take care of tonight, Obadiah. Obadiah. uh, He is a a man uh, with a name that means worshiper of Yahweh or servant of of Yahweh. So if you don't know where Obadiah is, I just suggest you use the table of contents because it's sort of hard to get to. (laughs) But he's the fourth in the 12 minor prophets. We've done Hosea with 14 chapters, Joel with three chapters, Amos with nine chapters, and Obadiah with one chapter. And I'm trying to help you distinguish them. And you're always going to be able to distinguish Obadiah if you'll just listen to me for one second or three seconds. Obadiah doesn't prophesy to Israel or Judah. He's the only one that does that. He prophesies to the brother or cousin of the Israelites, the Edomites who came from Esau. Okay? So how would you know if we came to you, I want you to ask each other this week, Sunday, whatever, what distinguishes Obadiah? You say, well, Obadiah is prophesying to the Edomites, to the Edomites. Now in Amos, in Amos, the book right before it, in chapter one, there's this prophecy against Edom. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, Edom, because he pursued his brother with the sword. So you've got to find out who his brother is. And cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman. That's one of the three great cities of Edom. Another one you know very well because you watch Indiana Jones. Petra. Petra is the place that's south of the Dead Sea and east of the Dead Sea 
And that's where Esau's descendants settled. Okay? And so those are the people that we're talking about. And why I took you back to Amos is because there's one verse in Amos about the Edomites, and God did a whole prophecy in the book of Obadiah on that one verse. And that's that they treated and pursued their brothers with the sword. So let's do this. Let's think about this. There are 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament. Some of the main ones are this one. In 1 Kings, there was an Obadiah who was an officer in Ahab, a king of Israel's court. In 2 Chronicles 17, 7, Obadiah was sent out by King Jehoshaphat of Judah to teach the law in the cities of Judah. 2 Chronicles 34, 12, Obadiah, one of the overseers who helped repair the temple in the days of Josiah. Nehemiah 10.5, Obadiah was a priest in the days of Nehemiah. We, we don't know exactly which Obadiah this one is. People guess all the time. But that's the point of the message. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. There is hardly anything that we know about this guy other than the, what his name means, worshiper or servant of Yahweh. But we do know this, how... Edomites came to be Edomites. They're the people that descended from Esau. Who was Esau's brother? Yell it out. Jacob, right, who were the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Remember this? And the brother of Jacob, of course. That's in Genesis 25. And Esau was nicknamed Red. We don't exactly know why. Red is Edom. That's where you get Edomites. Esau was nicknamed Red probably because he was redheaded or something. But anyway, that's in Genesis 25. And then they settle, and you need to know this, write this in your notes about Obadiah, in the area of Mount Seir, S-E-I-R. Oh, look at you. It's the same. Mount Seir is another way of saying, look right here, Edom. So there's Edom, or Mount Seir. They settle in the area of Mount Seir. Now, here's another thing that you need to know about the Edomites. They were the thorn in the side of the Israelites who came from Jacob. Remember, Jacob and Esau, because Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, and they had this real rivalry. We all know this. And Jacob was worried about his brother Esau and tried to stay away from him and not get killed by him. <laughs> And was nervous about it. Remember all this? And this is important for the story. So just hang in there with me. Because if you know this, it, the story will make great sense. Or the prophecy. And so he was nervous about it. But remember, Jacob is the second born of the twins. Oh, time out. There's the other announcement. Our new couple here, the Doyles. This is funny. Our new friends and... Uh, family here, the Doyles, Mike and Anna, they have three children, three and, a half, under, three and a half and younger. They had twins today. They had twins today. So if you want to help get them some food in the coming weeks, uh, see Olivia right there in the middle, and she's going to help you do that. And when they, when they get here again, uh, yell out congratulations or tell them congratulations. I knew I had another announcement. 
But anyway, Jacob and Esau are these two that come out. But remember, Esau's coming out and Jacob's the heel catcher. Tries to reverse the order, right? And it happens in Genesis several times with siblings, which is a great sermon in and of itself. And it speaks of God's grace, his choosing, because Jacob was a manipulator and a conniver and really wasn't all that great a dude. And you say, well, then why did he get the blessing instead of Esau? Doesn't God give it to the best people? Come on, folks. That's the whole story of the gospel. It's God's grace. And also, who is the second Adam? Jesus. Okay, but that's for another day. But anyway, so... What did uh, these Edomites do sometimes? Well, one time when uh, Israel was coming up out of Egypt, they tried to go through Edom there to come up on the other side of uh, uh, the Jordan River in order to go into the promised land. And guess what the Edomites said? No dice. Don't come through here or we'll get you. They opposed Saul and were conquered under David and Solomon in 1 Samuel. They joined with Moab and Ammon, two other enemies to attack Judah, and the Lord uh, saved them in Second Chronicles 20. They rebelled against King Jehoram of Judah. Uh, the Edomites attacked Judah in the days of King Ahaz. King Herod the Great in Luke 1.5, the Herod that was around when Jesus was born and wanted to kill the babies, guess what he was? An Edomite, an Idumean, an Edomite. He came from these people. And it's interesting because in 66 or 70 AD, I know I'm giving you a lot of history, after Jesus died and rose again, they joined forces, the Israelites and the Edomites, to fight against Rome. Uh, and Rome crushed Edomites or, uh, and basically wiped them out there and uh, uh, never to be heard of again. So, that's what I want you to, to know as we start this. Here comes this vision of Obadiah. You see this? Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now you know who Edom is. You're going to go, when somebody says, hey, let's go to the book of Obadiah, you're going to go, prophecy against Edom. Not against Israel, not against Judah. You're going to remember that. Didn't the, doesn't the Bible say in Genesis 12, the Lord says, I'll bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. Well, here you go. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. Now watch, why is it? that they're to be greatly despised. Well, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You guys, you guys back there in the tech team are really good if you put up the quote on pride. They're working on it. If not, I'm going to read it to you. Wow, look at you guys. God abhors those, peop uh, those people worst who adore themselves most. Pride is not a Bethel, that is a house where God dwells, but a babble, that is a stinking dungeon in which Satan abides. Pride is not only a most hateful evil, but it's a radical evil. 
as all other lusts are found lodging in it. Listen, read that. Think of that. All other lusts are found lodging in pride, so they are found springing from it. Pride is a foul leprosy in the face of morality and a hurtful worm gnawing at the root of humility. Who wrote it? Oh, pride is a cancer within and a spread, spreading plague without. William Secker, a Puritan. And the reason I put that up there is, notice that pride deceives you. You deceive yourself. I deceive myself when I walk in pride. It's the worst of sins. Proverbs 8 tells us that God hates our pride and our arrogance. Why? Why would it be that God would hate our pride and our arrogance? The improper pride, the selfish pride. Why? Because he can't work then. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud, the Bible tells us. Well, you keep going and you say, one of the things that was wrong with Edom is that they were prideful. What else? You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, speaking there of the Petra area, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as an eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Now, I didn't know this about Petra. Petra is that thing that you've seen on TV all the time with the red clay rocks, and it goes up real high, sort of like you're walking in the canyons in Utah. You know what I'm talking about? It's actually in Indiana Jones, right? But anyway, in order to get to the city of Petra, there's a one-mile walk through those canyons where some of them are as close as 12 feet together. That's pretty close. And so you walk through these canyons or this canyon for a mile back, and when you get back there, you get back to the city of Petra, and all the housing things, all the buildings, I don't know if I can call them buildings, dwellings, there you go, dwellings, are way up hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air. That's in Petra, that's in Edom. And so the Lord refers to this. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, verse 5, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they have not stolen till they had enough? In other words, you're going to be wiped out. If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? But in, the, in other words, but they're not going to be anything left for you guys. Oh, how Esau shall be, shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. Now that's fascinating because Petra was found in 1812 by a, I think he was British, might have been Scottish, uh, archaeologist, sort of a modern day Indiana Jones, or not a modern day Indiana Jones, but you get what I'm saying. And in 1812, he found it. And when he walked into the, down the cavern and found the buildings, there was nothing left in the buildings, but they've surmised by some of the markings and some of the things that they found. Listen to this that some of the dwellings acted as reserves for other nations, like banks. Isn't that fascinating? Because it was so high up and so impenetrable that they apparently paid or rented for these bank-like structures to keep stuff in. But there was nothing there when he got there. And so God, all these years before, refers to it. His hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy. Here's another thing that they were prideful about. They were prideful because they had impenetrable forces. They couldn't be touched. Oh, they couldn't be touched. Now, we have lots of things that think we can't be touched. 401ks, 
beautiful image, wonderful reputation in the community. How can the Lord get to me, we think? Or we have great alliances. I run with the great friends. I'm in the popular crowd. I have an amazing Instagram page. My Twitter is amazing. How could anybody get with me or get at me? So all the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Verse 8. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom? Because apparently in that place called Timon or Timon, Jeremiah 49.7, you could go there later, there's a reference to the wise men of the east being in this area, in Edom or Timon. So they trusted in their wisdom and their knowledge. Are you getting this? And the Lord's building this case against them. And he's saying, man, you are so prideful and it's so deceitful and it's, it's like playing on the devil's field and all these things can spring from it. It's pride, including your pride in nobody being able to get at you, your wealth, your alliances, your wisdom. Then, look at this, verse 9, your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Now here is where you find why God is so angry and wants justice. For violence against your brother Jacob. You know the story now again about Jacob and Esau. And you know that uh, the Edomites treated the house of Jacob very poorly through all these years. Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, apparently... In, there were several attacks. There's one attack against Israel in the mid-800s BC. Why am I telling you this? And then there's one attack that you all know because I say it every week, 586 BC when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Israel, uh, Jerusalem, including the temple. Commentators are split right down the middle when this prophecy was given, during the mid-800 attack or the Babylonian attack, Okay. But whichever attack you pick or think it is as you search out as a Berean, I want you to see what the Edomites did. They stood by and they did nothing. They stood by and did nothing while their brothers and sisters and their children were wrecked. In the day that strangers carried captive his forces... When foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. You stood by and you did nothing. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. In the day of his captivity, nor should... Okay, now it gets more serious. Not only did they stand by and do nothing, but whatever happened, whichever war uh, you think this is, what God says happened during that time is they not only didn't do anything, but they gloated and rejoiced that their brothers were being carried away. We better watch it, folks, when we root against our brothers and sisters. We ought to be cheering them on. The church down the street that's preaching the gospel, praise the Lord that they're doing so, and fill up their church, Lord, and take care of their pastors, and make them have a great youth group. 
Lord, we pray that for all that are praying the God or sharing the gospel in a loving way, in a true way. No, no, no jealousy here. I'm not rejoicing. We don't rejoice over our brothers and sisters falling. No way. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor you should you have spoken proudly. Oh my. In the day of distress, they were very vocal about this. They didn't hide it. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Now they become actively involved in the takeover of their brothers and sisters. Apparently the Edomites participated in this captivity or this attack. So you can't assist, you can't be actively involved. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor, look at this, laid hands on their substance. They took their stuff. They robbed them in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress, again, assisted them. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. Is that so true? Folks, of course, this is a prophecy, a near fulfillment, or excuse me, a near fulfillment of this prophecy is whenever the attacks came, either in the 800s or 586 BC, when the enemy came. But I want you to see something. He's clearly speaking of a far fulfillment of this prophecy because he says the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. Do you know in Matthew, at the end of Matthew, when Jesus is uh, separating the sheep from the goats, you know what that's about? That's about what nations were doing and how they treated the people of Israel. And God's going to judge the nations. And when is he going to do that? After the tribulation, when he comes back a second time, he's going to judge the nations. And I want you to see something. The day of the Lord is upon all the nations, the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. Wait a minute, near? This was written 800 BC, 500 BC, whatever it was. Here we stand at 200 AD. How could it be near? It doesn't mean near in time. It means near in imminence. In other words, the day is like a thousand years, or one year, one day is like, a, what is it? You know what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> time is, God's not limited by time. In other words, the day of the Lord is imminent. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Remember, in the New Testament, it says, whatever you sow, that shall you reap in Galatians. What are we sowing right now? Are you sowing for eternity? Am I sowing for eternity? Or am I sowing for my padding my bank account all the time? Can we sow for eternity? That's what I want to do. Well, as you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continuously. They'll drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. Not Mount Seir, Mount Zion. That's Jerusalem. And there shall be holiness. That's because the Lord is going to set up shop, kingdom. He's going to rule and reign from there with us, his saints who come with him. Read Revelation 19. 
and he's going to set up his kingdom out of Jerusalem. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. And it is stubble. There is no Edom today. There's no such thing. But there is an Israel. Isn't that fascinating? Israel, who is about ready to go into captivity, watch, and Edom, who basically thought they were big and mighty over the Israelites, today you have no Edom, and Israel stands in glory. Woo. They shall kindle them, there in verse 18, and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of the host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. That means that they're going to be people who are going to come and judge. You're going to be there, folks. The Bible tells us that you're going to be judging, doing some judging. But the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now watch. Now you've got to put on your thinking cap, and here's how it applies to you. David Goodzik says it best. You might want this quote. Don't worry about those who ignore your need. Hold on here. You ever got mad because somebody didn't help you? Don't worry about those who ignore your need. Don't worry about those who rejoice at your problems. Don't worry about those who take advantage of your crises. Don't worry about those who join their hands with others in attacking you. Why? God himself will take care of all of them. And that is a powerful truth. And the reason it's a powerful truth, there are some people who are so worried about what others do to them. They're so concerned about all this out here, they're never looking up here. And this book is powerful, and it says that God's going to put that all together and, 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 and sort it all out. So don't worry about it so much. Don't be so paralyzed about all of that stuff. Jonah. Boy, we're going fast. Jonah means dove. Isn't that fascinating? Jonah means dove, and he's writing somewhere between 793 and 753 B.C. Are you catching that? 793 or 753 B.C. It might have been a little bit after Obadiah prophesied, or it could have been 200 years prior to the time that Obadiah prophesied. We don't really know because we don't know which battle in Obadiah they're talking about. But that's not important. The message is important. In Jonah, we know a little bit more. And you're always going to remember and distinguish Jonah when I tell you this phrase. What is the only minor prophet that did no prophesying? Jonah. He did a little bit, but not really. We'll, I'll, I'll point that out when we get there. What's the only prophet, minor prophet that didn't, did no prophesying? Jonah. What's the only prophet that prophets, uh, prophesied to the Edomites? Obadiah. See, we're getting there. Here we go. Watch this. Begins as a story 
between God and Jonah. Then sailors come into the story. Then all the people of Nineveh come into the story. But it ends again with just God and just Jonah. Nineveh is a real powerful and wicked city. And probably Jonah grew up hating the Assyrian people because they, he feared them so much and their terrible things that they did to other countries and to people. And clearly you're going to see some hatred here was so strong that he didn't even want, to, uh, want them to receive any of God's mercy. See that? So here, let's just take a look at it very quickly. Not really very quickly. We got plenty of time. We got till 1030. No, I'm kidding. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The son of Amittai. We don't really know uh, uh, much about Amittai, except for that his name means my truth. God's prophets must be sons of the truth. Are you getting that? God's prophets are to be sons of the truth. The people who proclaim his word and speak his word. And the people who stand, listen, who people who stand in the middle of a culture that hates them. When you're proclaiming a message as a prophet, you must know in there the one who is truth and the truth. Jesus said, I'll sanctify them by my truth, my word is truth, right? If you want to be a person who impacts eternity, you'll store the word of God right there. Here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, my truth. All right. This is getting great because now I just shoot a little map over there, and I don't even have to put any message on it. They just know. I mean, it's so great. So thank you back there. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Now listen, he's saying this to Jonah, who grew up knowing about Assyrians. Do you understand this? That if this is being uh, prophesied in the 760s B.C., in about 40 years, the Assyrians are going to come to the northern kingdom of Israel and be really, really wicked and mean to the people of Israel. They're going to strip them naked. They're going to put fish hooks in their nose or up through their chin or in here, and they're going to attach them together that way, and they're going to parade them back to wherever they have to go. And they're going to treat them very cruelly because they treated everyone cruelly, and it became famous in the ancient world. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he says, arise. Can you imagine the word? Oh, you're like, wow. Well, however that came to Jonah. Can you imagine? Oh, man, this is my moment. The Lord speaking. What do you got for me, Lord? Well, uh, Jonah, I would love for you to arise. I want you to get up where you're from, and I want you to go to Nineveh. And the blood must have just drained from his face. Nineveh, that great city, that would be very difficult, folks. This city in Nineveh, all the way up there in the Assyrian Empire, was a great city fortified by these massive walls. It was a huge city. Some people said it took three days to walk across. 
Within the city, they had woods and things for animals and all that sort of... They had everything in there. And the you know, armaments and defenses were great. I mean, this would have been weird. Think about it. To a people I don't like and I'm scared of, you want me to march up there several hundred miles? Where am I going to go? How am I going to get in? What am I going to do? And oh, by the way, I don't really like them. A great city, and not only a great city, they're a wickedness, or a wicked city. Their wickedness has come up before me. Well, Lord, you said yourself, they're wicked. Why would you send me to them? Can't you get me to, the, you know, like, you know, I mean, the beach, or Colorado, or something beautiful. I mean, come on, why here? But he says the same thing to us as he says to them. He says, get up and go. Where is it that the Lord is calling us, me, you, to get up and go? He doesn't call you to sit on the couch, folks. Where is he calling you to go? It might even be scary. But what's really interesting about this whole thing, if you're bored now, don't be bored now. Look in chapter 4, verse 2. Ju uh, Jonah eventually tells the Lord exactly why he didn't want to go, and I bet it'll shock you. He says, so he prayed to the Lord, chapter 4, verse 2, and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. In other words, here's the real reason Jonah didn't want to go, because he knew how gracious and merciful God was, and he didn't want him to get saved. Wow. That's amazing. But, verse 3, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. Isn't that funny? Not really, but the place that God had called him to go, he went to Tarshish. Now, now, a lot of people debate about where Tarshish is. Most people believe it's over in Spain, and that's why that arrow is going that way. And so he's going there. And he started in the port city of Joppa, where Peter saw his vision, I think, in Acts chapter 10. I think it's Acts chapter 10, but that's Joppa. Okay, watch this. But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now I want you to circle that. He fled from the presence of the Lord. Maybe we read that too much. The beautifulness, the, the, the Lord. He's there with the Lord. The Lord's got him captive, or he's got the Lord captive audience. And then I want you to notice the next sentence. Because when you flee from the pleasant presence of the Lord, listen to me now, when you flee from the presence of the Lord, when you flee from the oh, things that God is calling to you, calling for you, calling out for you, calling you to do, when you flee from it, when you decide you're not going to do it, and you know when you've done that, I've done that, have you done that? Yes, when you do, no matter how good you think you got it, you're always going down. He goes down to Joppa, and finds a ship going to Tarshish. So, he paid the fare. He paid the fare. 
He found a ship going to Tarsus, and he paid the fare. What else happened? And he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. He just keeps going down and down and down when we go further from the Lord. I want you to know that he paid the fare. You know the story, so I'm going to give it away a little bit. He was thrown overboard, and he never received any sort of refund. You know that. One great pastor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, says this. It is always that way when you run away from the Lord. You never get to where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. On the other hand, when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you're going, and he pays the fare. Remember when Moses' mom put him in the river, and the sister runs down there, and you know how the Lord orchestrates that whole thing so that the mom eventually can nurse him. You know that, right? Do you know it also says in that story that the family, the Pharaoh people, actually paid her to do it? Isn't that interesting? When they stood up for what they knew what was right, when they followed what the Lord had them do, you don't get ripped off, in other words. You never get ripped off. Here, he pays the fare, and he's going to be out all the money, and he goes down into it. He goes with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Now, none of you are going ooh and ah right now or saying amen, because I'm wondering if we like to think of it this way. You know what? When you start to get away from the Lord, you know, I mean, you, you stop and you just, you know, you, your heart's just crusty and you, you know, you get involved in other things and they might not be in bad things, but you get away from the Lord and nothing really happens for a while. But then when you keep running and running and running, you, do you see the grace of God in the fact that a storm didn't arise. He sent a storm. Ooh, whoa. You know, you've got a lot of people that run around and say, you know that storm in your life, it's from the enemy. Hmm, really? Not here. God had something for Jonah. He ran the other way. And as he f went further down and down and down, the Lord, in his mercy and grace, sent a storm. And if you read this in the Hebrew, this wasn't just a little storm. This was a doozy. The sailors are scared. He sends a great wind on the sea, and there's a mighty tempest on the sea, so that it was about to be broken up. And the mariners were afraid. The mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down to the, look at this, the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down and was fast asleep. By the way, one other thing. As he pays the fare and has ship entrance, and he can do it. You know, when something is easy, 
Oftentimes we say, well, man, the Lord really opened the door for me on that deal. Really? Here, the door was wide open for him to pay the fare and go to Tarshish. In other words, not everything that easy that's easy is the Lord's way. In fact, I would say, if it's so easy, maybe it's not worth it. Here, the easy way was the wrong way. He thought it was the best way, but it was the wrong way. Well, anyway, sin doesn't just affect him. Mariners are afraid, and every man cries out to their God, throws cargo that was in the ship to lighten the load. But Jonah goes down into the lowest parts, lays down, and falls fast asleep. Let me just forget about it for a while. We have a lot of people in society to do that. Drugs, drink, sex, rock and roll. Just let me get my mind off my problems for a while. The problem is, when you wake up from all of that, the problem is still there. And oftentimes, it's something that the Lord is trying to use to get you to go back on his path. In other words, the interruptions of your life are just signals that God's ready to do something great in your life. Here we are, we're sitting there, we're doing our thing, and the Lord says, I want you to go up there and deal with those people and share the gospel up there. No way, I'm not doing that. They hate me. It's sad. And by the way, Lord, it's going to be, it's wicked. I can't go up there. What would I do? How would I do it? And oh, by the way, I know you. If I go there, those wicked people might get saved. I'm not doing that. Well, the captain comes to him, verse 6, and says to him, what do you mean, sleeper? (laughs) Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so uh, that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come on, let's cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and what do you know? The lot fell on Jonah. You just look up Proverbs 16.33. It says that even lots or dice are ordered by the Lord. Hmm, interesting. Look how this sin, this Denial of God's will to do what God has called you to. It's now starting to implicate lots of people. Do you know this? This real easy battle. When the Israelites came into the promised land, Ai, or however you want to say it, they got defeated at Ai because they didn't trust in the Lord and because Achan buried something he shouldn't have buried. Not to mention David. How about David? David, the Lord didn't want him to do it. David numbers and takes a census of the people in Joshua. And 70,000 people or died. Excuse me, that's in 2 Samuel. 70,000 people died. Your sin never just impacts you. You get that, right? And they say to one another, let's cast lots. They do cast lots. The lots fall to Jonah, verse 8, then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What's your country and what people are you? So, verse 9, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Obviously, these people, they sort of knew it. They'd heard of the, the Hebrew God. They had gods themselves. But they feared the Lord. Look at this, verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid 
and say to him, because they know his God, why, why are you doing this? For the men knew that, the, that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Now watch, just, I know we're getting to the end, but watch. He, you know what he just said? I'd rather die than do your will. Kill me. There's no way I'm going up there to do what you called me to do. Folks, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, or you need to ask for forgiveness, or you've been sinful in some of your relationships to people that you should honor and you haven't, or maybe you've gossiped against somebody and you've ruined their reputation. I don't know. It could be a million things. I don't know what it is. And you're saying to yourself, I ain't doing that. Whew. Watch out. You're not going to only harm yourself, all people around you. You can get to the place where you'd say, I, I can't do it. I won't do it. There's no way I'm doing it. You'd rather die than do it. Don't do it. Go towards the Lord. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men <laughs> rode hard to return to land, but they could not for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then what happened here? The men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. <laughs> wow. Well, somehow, some way, these men are touched in this boat. It reminds us, doesn't it? It reminds us in the New Testament when Jesus on the Sea of Galilee was either in or outside the boat, or they were in or outside the boat. He, this is the one who could calm the storm. Making a reference to the Old Testament in which God, the Father, could calm the storm. In other words, Jesus is God. But here, apparently, when they threw him over the side, they got rid of the problem. <laughs> and here's the point, maybe. Do you really want to be a problem like that? What is it that the Lord has for you? I don't know. Why are you not doing it? I don't know. Why am I not doing it? I don't know. Or maybe I know about myself. Do you say things like this, I'm too busy? And get something out of your life that you can spend the time to do it. What is it that God has called you to that you haven't done? Here, here's the thing. There's real life and real joy and real eternal things that can happen if you quit just bucking him, keeping him at bay. 
And as I pray and we close out here tonight, let me just read the rest of it. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Say, okay, I know that story. Really? Jesus authenticated this whole story. He said in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, this is the sign that I'm going to give you. <laughs> they all wanted signs, man. Just like Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the whale, so will I be in the earth and then be lifted up. You know that saying. Jesus authenticated the book of Jonah. Jesus knows, we know, that the will of God in our life is to get rid of the self life and live the crucified life. And I want us to think about that as we go out this week. What is it to live the crucified life? It's to take up our cross every day and to walk with him. It's to be a servant in a world that doesn't put much value on servanthood. Even be a servant when people treat you like a servant. That's the great litmus test. What if somebody treats you like a servant? How do you react? How do I react? Great. Treat me like a servant. That's what I am. <laughs> well, anyway, we'll go on with chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 next week. Lord, we just pray together as we close out tonight. Lord, if there's anything in our life that you know or we know is your will and we're running from you, could be a million things in each person's life, different people's lives. Lord, I pray you'd give us the strength and the ability by the crucified life, not by our own strength, to go and make that right, or as much as it's up to us, make that right. Help us to love like you love, Lord. See people like you see them. Pray for people and not grow faint and weary. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.